0: Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands of Eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our human relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, forestry, community, conservation, and other interconnected issues. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground, where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving ecosystems and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. To support the Shared Ground podcast, you can make a donation with no sign-in required at kofi.com by searching there for Shared Ground. That's ko-fi.com and then type in Shared Ground. Any little bit helps and is so appreciated. Clifford Paul met me at East Bay Sandbar in Unamagi, also known as Cape Breton in Nova Scotia. This is within Mi'kma'ki on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Mi'kma'k people. Throughout this episode, Clifford illustrates ways in which Mi'ma traditional knowledge and Western scientific knowledge can be woven together through what is known as two-eyed seeing, or etawampdamug, Elder Albert Marshall and his late wife, Elder Merdina Marshall, developed this approach, which is now being applied across many fields internationally. Two-eyed seeing informs Clifford Paul's management plans through the Unamagi Institute of Natural Resources (UINR), and he explains the concept with a traditional oral story and a science story. Clifford is a father and grandfather. He has done a variety of work, including as a writer, photographer, and editor, and as the criminal records manager and dispatch trainer for the Unamagi Tribal Police. Now, he is moose management coordinator for UINR. Another passion of Clifford's is creating jewelry through his business, Bear Man Authentics. So now, to the beautiful shore at the East Bay Sandbar. Clifford, thank you for meeting with me today, and you have suggested meeting at this beautiful place and I thought we could just uh, take a moment to paint a picture for the listeners of where we are. Could you tell us about where, we, where we're where we sitting?
1: Yeah, we're at a very um, peaceful spot. It's uh, the East Bay Sandbar and historically this would be a, a place where my ancestors will be coming through to get into the, the Bador Lakes and it's a rich ecosystem here. It's a rich uh You have incredible sunsets here, but it's imbued with spirit, this place, because these are the shorelines of my ancestors. I like to come here, sometimes alone, just to watch the sunset, have a coffee, or even uh, make a campfire, bring the grandkids here, have a campfire right on this beach here, and it doesn't matter. If anybody shows up, it's, it's not a party, it's just solitude. Beautiful solitude. So that's what you see here.
0: I know that you work for UINR, which is Unamagi Institute for Natural Resources. Yep. And I gather you wear many, many different hats.
1: Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, first of all, could could you just tell us a little bit about what UINR is and how how your organization operates, or the the values that you operate upon? I guess.
1: Yeah. The elders tell me we are the voice for those that cannot speak for themselves the birds the mammals the fish the insects the forests they speak to us but somewhere down the line in corporate boardrooms who speaks for the forest? so it's us you know we we're uh, we're a team of Mi'kmaq environmentalists but we're also managers we we manage help manage ecosystems We are the voice for Mother Earth, and we take very seriously this role, the roles we have, because we want not just the preservation of Unumagi, all our traditional ancestral lands to be treated with respect.
0: I understand uh, a little bit about two-eyed seeing, although I don't know how to say the Mi'kmaq word properly, yeah. um, but I would love it if you could explain that a bit and how it's a foundation of the work.
1: Yeah, yeah. I am, uh, my job is a natural resource manager. I, I manage moose in Unamagi. I'm the moose management coordinator. And I use a very interesting approach. I, I use the combination of my traditional knowledge with my modern Western scientific knowledge. It, it's been called two-eyed seeing our elder who advises me dr albert marshall calls it two-eyed seeing it will wump the moog it will wump the moog yeah like that you know i grew up visiting these waters watching the birds the mammals the fish the insects i see migration patterns i see it freeze over i see a lot of change over time and I catch fish, I clean fish, I cook fish, I hunt with my brother. I didn't know I was building a repertoire of traditional knowledge that will help me with my modern Western scientific knowledge. Mm. What you see in front of you here, this beautiful place is our way of life, and in the classroom, it is a science lab lab, you know, mm. and our lab in the modern western scientific sense everything we do out there our medicines our food our survival had gone through the rigorous laboratory of survival so as a practitioner of the 2 eyed scene, i i use my my traditional stories. I use my experience on the land with my grandfathers, my grandparents, my older uncles and aunts, uh, my older siblings. I built a repertoire of traditional knowledge because it's our way of life, but also it built in the two-eyed seeing concept. My traditional eye is wide open. So, I use that to manage moose and moose ecosystems in Unamagi. Mm. I use the traditional knowledge of not only what I've learned, but what other people have learned and shared with me. So I'm able to use that. And as a traditional person, I can get away with that. And in the two-eyed seeing model, my traditional eye is wide open, but I dance in two worlds. I also have my modern Western scientific education, my reading, my writing and arithmetic, my high school diploma, my university degree, my training. So I'm able to take the strengths and tenets of the of the modern Western scientific world. I'm able to understand stories that come out of that, you know, the journal articles and the theories and studies. I'm able to take that and I can go around the world and talk about that. And my modern Western scientific eye is wide open. And I can get away with that. But like I said, I dance in two worlds. I take the strengths and tenets of both. And I weave the fabric of both into what a, a natural resource management plan should look like. How a traditional management plan should be built, constructed, and using the strengths of my traditional knowledge and using the strengths of modern western scientific knowledge the fabric from both
0: hmm that's such a, a strong image in my mind now i mean speaking of strength that's that's exactly what uh what I, I i could really picture the strength of those coming together the way you said you weave them together and is it is it true that it's less likely to feel like you Think oh this one thing from this like so-called side is wrong and this one is right like are you somehow just able to find the truth or the the best in both and then weave those together is that how it works would you say or
1: that's a good point and I I usually answer a question like that with a story oh good and uh, for us you know it's the oral tradition it it is uh, the transmission of that knowledge um it's not recorded. You won't find it in the in the halls of a church basement. It's in the hearts and lifestyles of our people. So oral tradition is very accurate because I might die tomorrow, but my stories are alive because I passed them on. And that's how that information is transferred. But anyways, uh, this is an oral tradition story. It covers the two-eyed seeing, and it's a it's another illustration i guess so um a long long time ago and in the time of legends our ancestors were living in a very harsh environment a very harsh climate it was the the ice age and when we went out to get food we became food because their animals were big and fierce. We had the short-faced bear. We had the saber-toothed cat. We had the dire wolf. Even the squirrel was big and fierce. We had the giant beaver. We had uh, the megafauna. And our ancestors prayed hard for survival, not only from the weather, but these incredible animals, which were big and fierce, our Future was compromised. So they prayed to the creator for help. And the creator so loved the Ilnu, the human of the land, us Mi'kmaq speakers, but we're Ilnu, which is the human of the land. The creator so loved the Ilnu that the creator sent Glooscap to work on that solution. So Glooscap appeared to the people, and he so loved the Ilnu, the humans of the land, he endeavored to find a solution. So Glooscap took the short-faced bear, lovingly petted and stroked it till it became the modern bear of today. Done so with the dire wolf, lovingly petted it and stroked it till it became the modern canines, wolves, foxes, coyotes of today. Done so with the saber-toothed cat, The giant beaver and the squirrel and all these animals became the animals we know today and glooscap is not the creator glooscap does the work of the creator so glooscap you know will change a landscape for our survival will change the flow of a river for our survival and in this case glooscap changed the animals and instructed the animals to serve the humans and not to cause fear so today nine times out of ten if there's a bear near me it's gone unless i do something foolish i like get in between it's and it's young well that's not wise of me so the animals changed the climate changed, and our ancestors survived now you look at that story it's told On a shoreline, at an encampment, the fire going, the smell of the sweet grass, the sights, the sounds, the smells of Mother Earth, the waves coming in on the shore, the stars over your head. You're using all your senses to learn. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know how crisp that is in the imagination Mm -hmm. instead of studying it from a book? and it's told by a voice more ancient than mine. So that's the story of evolution told in a very colorful way. Mm -hmm. And that is the oral sense of it all. So as a traditional person, I can travel the world and tell the story of the extinction of the megafauna and the rise of a new animal. I can tell that story in that traditional sense. My traditional eye is wide open. And I can travel the world and get away with it. Because why? I'm a traditional person. But I am also, like I said, I dance in two worlds. I do have a modern Western scientific approach. My reading, my writing, my arithmetic, my training, my high school diploma, my university degree, my experience. And um, I have to tell now a science story. So... In DeBert, Nova Scotia, they found in a hearth a stone tool. It was a stone hide scraper. And it was sitting there for a long time because in DeBert, Nova Scotia, that's where our ancestors would intercept the migration patterns of the ancient caribou herds. And it is there they would uh, harvest caribou for winter survival. So there'd be camps there, not just harvesting, but preparing the, f- the food for winter, working on the hides. So this stone hide scraper was sitting there, and they decided, okay, how long was this sitting here? So the scientists radiocarbon dated the materials from where the scraper was found within the hearth, and uh, they figured it out. It was sitting there for 10,600 radiocarbon years. Translate that into calendar years. That's eleven to fourteen thousand calendar years. Wow. So here we have a stone tool with my ancestors' fingerprints. Takes us to a time to the extinction of the megafauna. Here you have a traditional story, the changing of the animals, which takes my ancestors, the Mi'kmaq, gives them a fingerprint to the time of the extinction of the megafauna. <laughs> So, in the two-eyed seeing, I can't say establishment, but in the two-eyed seeing way of interpreting science in the natural world, I have a traditional story, the extinction of the megafauna as told through the legends of Glooscap, which takes us to a time 11 to 14,000 years ago. I have a traditional story that's backed by science you know how good that is science backs up my traditional story man that's great that's Mm. big stuff man that's that's incredible i also have a science story the extinction of the megafauna the radiocarbon dating of the materials where a stone hide scraper was found takes us back 11 to fourteen thousand calendar years so my ancestors are eyewitnesses to this change i have this incredible science story that's backed by a mi'kmaq legend That's powerful, man. Mm -hmm. And science is starting to catch up to our legends. Science is starting to understand the stories, the folklore, the traditional knowledge, the oral history of our people is embedded with science. It's embedded with tradition. In the two-eyed seeing world, both stories have equal merit and both stories have equal strength None are more important than the other.
0: I'd like to bring in the voice of Elder Albert Marshall here.
2: When we reflect
3: on our own culture to the help, to the information from science, we can honestly say we've been here close to 20,000 years. Then, when we reflect
2: the actions of our ancestors, we clearly know that in their way of coexisting with nature, their overarching objective was to help everyone to
3: ensure that their actions are going to be in harmony with nature. We have been given something that no other creature has, and that's a card of the mind. And for us now to use that cognitive mind in a much more positive and effective way of ensuring, individually, collectively, everyone would be encouraged
2: and helped of ensuring that
3: our actions from here on end will always be in harmony with nature. And if we feel that they were not in harmony with nature, then we have this cognitive mind to devise something in which it would mitigate and to restore the damage that we have created. There is definitely a need of some kind of a transformative change, and that transformative change has to be in which we empower everyone.
0: That was Elder Albert Marshall, who coined the phrase two-eyed seeing, and has been instrumental in expanding people's understanding of what it is and how this approach can help solve our challenges. Now back to Clifford Paul on the East Bay Sandbar. I guess I'm curious when you work with uh, non non-Mi'kmaq scientists, particularly in Mi'kma'ki, are there a lot of people and a lot of organizations that are adopting this way of working with the Mi'kmaq people and trying to figure out how to use, incorporate two-eyed seeing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the mainstream, uh, people that are out there who don't have the benefit of our lifestyle, they're open in and challenging their own knowledge base by listening, watching, and seeing the examples that come out. Like the moose here in Unamagi, um, they were said to have died off and replaced with uh, moose that were brought in by Parks Canada in the late 1940s, a different tribe, Ulses, Ulses andersoni, and the native moose were the Alsace, Alsace Americana. Mm. And our harvesters, since we've been back hunting moose after several Supreme Court decisions, so 1989 on, we hunt, and we notice certain features on certain moose that carry the same features as what you would see in the original population. So we've been telling that, and we had a... I harvest in the national park for 4 years and we come across a few moose with those features and we told parks canada this this one still has dna from the original population which means the original population may not have entirely died off hmm. because there's areas in the cape breton highlands you can't get to without even with modern equipment mm-hmm. so back in the 1800s early 1800s when they were killed off uh-huh. How could they get to some places mm. that are pretty well inaccessible? So we figured some moose survived wow. and their genes are passed down.
0: Oh, isn't that something?
1: Yeah. So that's that's a two-eyed seeing story. That is traditional knowledge. So for us, the acceptance of traditional knowledge at a level where it could be understood by science... That's more important to me, because I have nothing to prove out there. You know, when we were in university and we were learning about the two-eyed seeing concept, the knowledge was already there. And my fellow students were having difficulty trying to explain this to mainstream science people, you know. And I told them, guess what? You don't have to prove anything. Just do your work. Do your work. If you do your work... Diligently, it'll show. And here we are, a very short time, only 20 years later. Mm -hmm. The world knows about Two-Eyed Seeing. Mm -hmm. And the world wants to hear from people like me, my classmates, not just what Two-Eyed Seeing is all about. They want to hear from the practitioners of the Two-Eyed Seeing. So it's an incredible wave of traditional information. And there's people out there now, universities and places, they have their own two-eyed sea in camps. And guess what? They don't even need us to help. To me, that that's successful. That's success. In my lifetime, I never knew the time I spent here, the time I spent camping on islands, the time I spent flipping over rocks as a child. I didn't know I was building a repertoire of traditional knowledge which would help me in the classroom as a mature science student. Mm. So our youth have to be made more aware, our youth have to be brought back into these waters, into these lands, and learn and build a repertoire of traditional knowledge. Whatever they want to be in the future, they can draw upon that, Mm -hmm. they need to build the strength of their traditional knowledge, build that repertoire of traditional knowledge, and they can help science and science can help them.
0: Yeah. Oh. I'd love to hear about the potentially mutually beneficial um, you know, practices that can come together and, and hopefully yeah, where people can work together and then and the non non-indigenous people can learn how to live here respectfully and learn how to um well, when you were saying about some universities having their own um, two-eyed seeing camps, mm-hmm. are you saying that they're able to integrate that or teach it without even um, being um, w- like from the indigenous people no, there, involved? there's or, like-
1: Mi'kmaq, like two-eyed seeing mm-hmm. was already out there. It just never was formalized the way we formalized it. There were other... Ways to describe it, but once Albert Marshall gave it the moniker, okay, to wide seeing at the moog, everything started the attention and the focus saw the strength and the importance of this knowledge that had already existed. It's not new
2: mm-hmm.
0: I see I guess what I'm trying to understand is if um. So I'm thinking of all the people that are n- not Mi'kmaq that live in Mi'kmaqi now and all of the folks, um, who do really care also about, you know, they're trying to feel their own connection to the land and they want the forests protected and they want people to, you know, practice forestry in sustainable ways and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So for, for those folks to try to learn to practice, like, like, how would non-Indigenous people, like, just on their own kind of try to practice too wide-seeing, would it be? Yeah.
1: yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, um, learn from the elders, and traditional knowledge is not just Mi'kmaq traditional knowledge. Traditional knowledge is just is not just First Nations traditional knowledge. We have people that been living here as settlers for six hundred years. Their life here the traditional knowledge is 600 years old. They brought knowledge from their homelands and applied it here. So traditional knowledge exists. And if you look at these waters, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Dr. Shelly Denny did research. She's our, she works with uh, UINR. She studied the Bradora Lake um, Heron and she defied convention. It's a Mi'kmaq woman, a mother, doing a study that the industry said there's only two species of heron around Cape Breton. And DFO, the government, said there's only two. Industry said there are two. But our people, our Mi'kmaq people, said, no, the Bredore Lake heron are their own genetically distinct species. Hmm. We see them overwinter here in the ice traditional knowledge. Also, non-Mi'kmaq people who lived around the Berdor said, guess what? Our Berdor Lake heron are their own genetically distinct species. Hmm. So she used the traditional knowledge of Mi'kmaq and non-Mi'kmaq, gathered scientific data, collected the otoliths from the fish, found three different readings from each one, and she proved against convention and against industry that the Brador lake heron are their own genetically distinct species and she used the traditional knowledge of mi'kmaq and she used the traditional knowledge of non-mi'kmaq that's the most important thing is we understand traditional knowledge unless it's identified as mi'kmaq or first nation or aboriginal or indigenous whatever the name is traditional knowledge can stem from many cultures
0: so each one of us um we can try to have as strong and respectful a connection as we can with the land and also the stories and understandings of our of our ancestors if we're fortunate enough to have that connection to learn from the land and the history uh, whoever we are is that
1: the biggest advantage we have as First Nation is we understand our sense of place. We're part of nature.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't look at a forest and and figure out how much we're going to earn from each block. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The economy is based on how far industry can destroy Mother Earth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Our survival is dependent on how much we can preserve and protect Mother Earth. So we have extremes so young people today they have to understand that we are part of mother earth we belong to mother earth we should not have ownership we should be in a position to keep it the way it should be for future generations and uh we try hard we fight hard here in unamagi we fight very hard and we don't want a government or industry that has a history of destroying landscapes, destroying lakes and rivers. We want uh, a solid ecosystem. We want it to come back to historical proportions. That's the way we do our work. That's what UINR is all about.
0: Mm. I I um, have just recently become aware of the UNESCO biosphere reserves, of which I see there's one up here in Unama'gi, and there's also one in uh, Southwest Nova Scotia. Yeah. And I was looking on their website today, and I'm just going to read read what it said. Um, it, it, so the, this was from the yeah. Bradeur Lakes website. It said, um, the biosphere reserves are special regions around the world that have been recognized by the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, as examples of places where people are trying to live in harmony with their environment. They are places where others may learn how to live more sustainably. Yes. So, how are you interacting with this UNESCO um designation good. and is it
1: No, that's that's a good question. Uh, you're looking at it. When I say protect this place, you know, my my arm is reaching mm-hmm. to what you can see, mm-hmm. but it's beyond that. This is an incredible uh ecosystem. I I I'm an indigenous uh food provider, indigenous food sovereignist. So I take my grandkids here. My friend has a boat. And we go out and we harvest food. And we look at the water, how crystal clean it is. We look at uh, landscapes. And we see some of it is uh, struggling some places. You know, where man has uh, cut, put up cabins, took down trees, and left lawns. You know, that's an unnatural environment for a shoreline.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But we see things out there. Our stories are out there. Our ancestors are out there. So we have to bring our kids, our youth of any nationality out there so they can feel the spirit of the land and water. They can understand their sense of place and that they belong here and that it's not foreign to them the biggest complaint i get is our youth today are divorced from nature i hate to believe it but when i see them spend hours upon hours on their video games and not hours and hours out here then there's a great divide it's my job as a food sovereignist, is to pass this knowledge on to our children our youth let them learn let them see patterns in nature so they understand what protection preservation sustainability is all about because they have a they are building a repertoire of traditional knowledge which can only be referenced in the classroom but the actual transmission is beyond the walls of a classroom into natural places such as this so we don't believe the amount of food my kids and grandkids have brought to the community from just this one spot. Oh yeah. And we do it in a way that we don't over harvest, we do it in a way that's respectful, with ceremony, with love and good intentions in our hearts. So my grandsons and granddaughters who've been fishing with me for over ten years, they already have in their in their minds the repertoire of traditional knowledge. They have 10 years experience of what they see in nature here. Just this one spot. We want it like that in many areas along the coast, moose hunting, fishing, ice fishing, collecting medicines, doing their crafts, all these things. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. You've got to learn to respect Mother Earth and all that dwell upon it. Today's world, with all the distractions of uh, the electronic world, Mm -hmm. it goes against that. So we have to take our kids away from those machines, bring them out here, show them the life so that they have the strength of not only their modern Western scientific education, but they're building their traditional knowledge. So when you see a place As a biosphere, UNESCO World Heritage Site or UNESCO biosphere, that's music to my ears because we have other nations looking at protection, looking at Mm. conservation, Mm. looking at preservation, and looking at sustainability.
0: Okay, so even if they're not like working directly with you, but the, the name, the designation itself is very important. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And it's, okay. uh,
1: it, it also it represents the Mi'kmaq way of looking at things too. Yeah. So it's a different language, mm. but really it honors the relationship we've had uh. and continue to have.
0: That makes sense to yeah. me. So, so you can say, oh, finally, they're paying attention. They're, they agree now, maybe in different language, but other people are working towards this too now. Yeah. Okay. So maybe um, back to when you were mentioning the moose, I'd read about that, that the moose from out west were brought here to replace the moose that were extinct or maybe not yeah. quite extinct, like you were saying. And then you mentioned the, um, the species Ulsus Ulsus Americana. That was yeah. the original one. Yeah. And so we have, um, I said I was from Guest-Pictwick District, and um, there we've been having a lot of, you know, the moose, the mainland moose, which they're known in common language there, is on yeah. uh, the brink of extinction. Yeah. And would those be that species, the original moose, do you yes, know, down yeah, that actually. way? Okay.
1: Yeah, they're the original population, and um, it's funny, when it came time to repopulate Unamagi with moose, they could have gone to New Brunswick, they could have gone to mainland Nova Scotia, Hmm. but for some reason, there was a hyperabundant population in northern Alberta, Elk Island National Park, and they found a way to capture them i guess (laughs) bring them here Uh. so yeah it's pretty interesting the the mindset of the day Mm. and it's sad the ones in here you know we see loss of habitat we see climate change we see uh parasites come in and in so many changes that the moose there are having a very very hard time in the recovery and what's missing in that picture is when universities and the province and others that were working on a recovery plan they didn't look at the traditional knowledge of the mi'kmaq because the mi'kmaq had expert guides back in the day in the territories they had Traditional knowledge passed on from them to their children and grandchildren is still alive in their hearts. I think trends and changes in nature, how ecosystems change, I think that's very important information that they did not look at. And um, it's still there. And I hope that the traditional knowledge of the native moose, the Americanas, in Nova Scotia is looked upon as very important. Um, I think we have something there that'll help. It may not bring them back, but it gives you a greater understanding of the trends that our people who lived off this land since time immemorial, what they have to offer science.
2: Mm -hmm. And is
0: there... um, I know we don't have that much time for you to tackle such a big subject, probably. But uh, is there s- something that you would like to share about your moose management plan and how things are going in Unamagi? With yeah, okay,
1: okay. Um, first, got hired. They say, "Clifford, you're going to manage moose in Unamagi." I said, "That's great." Uh, I found out I'm a terrible moose manager. I can't manage moose. You know, they don't <laughs> listen to me. <laughs> but. The next best thing is to manage human behavior around uh, moose. Okay. So I've done that very well. I learned, uh, you know, that uh when I was hired, there was a, a hyperabundant moose population. And every time we collaborated, it was all about hyperabundance. And then 2019 the numbers went down. They went down. Like it was continue, which is normal if you got a hyperabundant population. The trend is to have lower numbers, right? Mm. And then 2019, we had, uh, I would say, an anomaly because it showed extreme low numbers. So we behaved around it as if it were true. We instituted our own measures in the Mi'kmaq community that we would uh, only take young bulls. We would leave the cows and calves alone. Mm. Great food source, but we would leave them alone and we will change our hunting a certain way. And hyperabundant is a word I don't use anymore. It took 15 years, right? So now we did another study in 2020 because there's something, we felt there was something wrong with that first study and the numbers were up. Not high, but not extremely low, but in an area that shows manageability carrying capacity and we've done so in such a way that just this year our harvesters are saying we're having a good time hunting we're actually getting moose not like the last three years 2019 2020 2021 where we lifted our activities now we see the results so Joe Nova Scotia thinks an abundant, hyper-abundant moose population might be great because of the hunting opportunities that arise from that. The Mi'kmaq have been telling me from day one, since I was hired, we have too much moose in the Cape Breton Highlands. We have too many moose in the Cape Breton Highlands National Park. We're worried of a crash. We're worried about food opportunities, the changes to the landscape. They were using traditional knowledge to help the modern Western scientific knowledge of our partners. Mm. And it came to a point where, you know what? The Mi'kmaq got something here. We gotta look at this hyperabundant population. We gotta look at all these things. And guess what? It wasn't alarming because landscapes were changing in the Cape Breton Highlands. A natural boreal forest Mm. did not give way from a mature forest to a young forest. The natural succession of forests was impeded upon by a hyperabundant moose population. The moose did not allow a new forest to grow. So what we were getting in in a boreal forest, we were getting large savannas of grass. Hmm. That's not a feature of a boreal forest, and boreal forest creatures cannot survive in that environment. Hmm. You know, um, yeah, I'm a moose management coordinator. I would not be doing my job if I only focused on moose. In an ecosystem, you have the moose, you have the the lynx, you have the bobcat, you have the bear, you have the beaver, you have the Canada geese, you got the salmon, you have the pine marten, you have all these animals together. They have agreements they have a ways and means to survive and help each other survive. That's how an ecosystem works on the agreement and the way each individual member within an ecosystem behaves, feeds itself, and lives. But if I'm just going to be a moose management coordinator and make moose decisions, I'm not doing my job. If salmon people are just meeting and working and studying salmon and just making salmon decisions, they're not doing their jobs. If pine martin people are doing the same, if forestry people are thinking the same, if stream recovery people are thinking the same, we have to learn to work together. I have to communicate with those that are working on pine martin, lynx, salmon, bear. We have to communicate. We can't put our portfolios on the wall in a pigeonhole and say, Oh moose, this is working on moose. No. Mm -hmm. We have to imitate what occurs in nature. And what occurs in nature is a remarkable communication. So as I go to schools and I talk to young people that are that want to get into natural resource management, I tell them you have to communicate the same way the birds communicate with the fish. The same way the insects Mm communicate with the birds the same way the forest communicates with us as humans Mm. we have to understand we have to understand that ecosystems thrive on that communication so must our work
2: Mm.
0: yeah i love that i mean i guess the traditional through traditional knowledge and and paying attention to the rest of Nature and the, all the other animals, and and uh, observing and learning how they all communicate and interact with one another—it's—it's just—it was a really interesting um, image or new understanding I just got from you now about that, um, as well as all the other benefits of learning those things. It can also help us learn to communicate and interact with each other, in in order to kind of help be part of the whole world, the whole system.
1: Yeah, it's Mi'kmaq natural law. You know, what occurs in nature governs. I can't say it governs, that's a <laughs> colonial word. Mm-hmm. What occurs in nature inspires us. You know, our ancestors matched their migration patterns to the birds, the mammals, and the fish. Mm-hmm. They done so in such a way that they would not harm the integrity and diversity of an ecosystem and the populations. So we would harvest fish at a time where they're at their peak food value. And we would do so in such a way that we would not impede upon their populations, so it was a balance, it was a balance, and we done so with hunting done so with gathering done so with our medicines, and today, because of the impact of industry, the impact of several generations of take 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 cut 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 slash 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 burn 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 sell 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 repeat 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 Mm -hmm. um my elders tell me cliff no matter what you're doing today i'm glad you're doing your work as a natural resource manager but here's the context whether you're doing a moose management plan or doing a stream restoration or studying and tagging salmon looking at bird migrations, got to remember, it's good work and you're doing damage control for the last 500 years. Boom, that hit me hard. Mm -hmm. And I had to look at my work from that perspective. So I have to use my traditional knowledge. I have to use my modern Western scientific knowledge. I have to consult my elders and my youth. I have to consult my colleagues and scholars. And with that understanding, I want to make sure that when I'm done, my management plan is not a piece of, pa- piece of paper on a shelf. The management plan is our management plan, Mi'kma'l led, but it is a change of behavior, a change of behavior. And that's what's been going on since I started. I did not institute the change. I allowed conversations to occur, which brought forth that change. So I just served as Mm -hmm. a conduit for change. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's more important than having a management plan that's a piece of paper. It's activity, it's change of behavior, and it's the way to move
3: forward.
0: Thank you. Um, Could we end maybe with um, maybe a a little, if you could share another story, not necessarily a, a traditional oral story, but I was just wondering if you could, you were mentioning before about Kids these days not being as connected and being distracted by all the modern you know enticements like video games and such. But I also know you're a father and a grandfather and a an uncle, and you bring kids, mm-hmm. you know, you bring them out with you and doing traditional things. And do you, is there a time uh, that you could take us to like a memory you have of maybe when you brought one of your kids or another uh, you know yep. youth that you work with out and shared some traditional knowledge and and how the, and when they were really engaged in excited and connected
1: yes that's a good one of my grandsons uh i took him to the ocean to catch striped bass and it's um the other side of the island and we fish at night cold weather we go there we watch the sun come down and we watch the moon rise Mm -hmm. we have the waves coming in the sights the sounds the smells it awakens your senses. And we offer tobacco and we pray. So it is in that environment, me and my grandson are offering tobacco to the water. And I pray. I I give a prayer, you know, I thank the Creator for this that I have this beautiful day, this beautiful gift, that I'm able to have the physical, emotional, and mental and spiritual capacities to do these things and teach these things and I ask the ancestors to join us, grant us a safe and successful harvest. I ask uh, I want to let the birds, the mammals, the fish, and the insects know that I'm in their territory with good intentions and love in my heart. And I ask that should we not acquire food, may we acquire knowledge, which is ever conducive to our survival, and a few other things. And I pray like that. And I notice my grandson is praying harder and longer. And at that time, he would be um 10-year-old. He's praying really hard. And then he tells me, as the sun is coming down and the moon is rising and the waves are coming in, that adventure that's on his face, you know, we're ready. But he done the work first of praying. He said, Papa, this is the only thing that makes me feel more human. And I thought about it here's a kid taken away from whatever kids play i don't know if they still cut the head off the dragon i don't know or race those little cars probably more complex today but here's a kid telling me this activity makes him feel most human wow that is ancient because ilno is the human of the land and he's doing the things that our ancestors have done in the natural world and I look at the beach, it would be the same, with a few little landscape changes, it would be the same environment as it were a thousand years ago. He made me think the importance of not linear thought, but constant flux and motion, that we were standing there at a moment in time, yes, but not mindlessly, are ancestors have brought us here and we're in this spot doing what our ancestors have done and what we do how we do it how we pray how we approach the resource how we approach the natural world it's going to positively impact the next seven generations so there's 14 generations seven back us there seven ahead that we're wary of and that my grandson showed me How important it is for us as humans of the land to be doing what we're doing.
0: I just love that story of Clifford with his grandson and imagining those shores stretching into time and the importance of this place to humans and so many other species since time immemorial. I enjoyed listening to everything Clifford shared, and was particularly appreciative to have his help understanding how non-Indigenous people can learn to use two-eyed seeing, as well as his illustrations of the use of traditional knowledge, which can come from many different cultures. Earlier in the conversation, I included a clip from Elder Albert Marshall, and I wanted to let you know about another podcast I'm hosting called Elder Voices. While in Unamagi, I had the honor of speaking with Elder Albert Marshall for that podcast, which is a project of How We Thrive. The purpose of Elder Voices is to learn more about elderhood in various communities in Nova Scotia. You can search for Elder Voices wherever you get your podcasts, and also you can find it at the website at howwethrive.org. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans.  .